And tonight we're in Genesis chapter 11. Let's turn our Bibles there. Genesis chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at the Tower of Babel. You could call this the Tower of Terror, maybe. It was an attempt by mankind to do something grand, but they did it really without God. And whenever you do something without God, it will always bring confusion to your life. So here's what God said. Backtrack with me. Genesis 9, verse 1, and let's pray. Father, as we come before your holy word, we thank you for the message of scripture. We thank you that it explains so much about life and what's happened on the planet. Thank you for the hope that you bring us in Jesus Christ. Thank you that he entered time and space to save us. And as we study your word, we need the help of your Holy Spirit right now, Lord. So give us ears to hear, a mind that's ready to receive, and a heart ready to obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now God, uh, Genesis 9-1, blessed Noah and his sons, this is after they embarked the ark, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that was the command. And then in Genesis chapter 10, we saw the table of nations and how the different nations were laid out. If you look at verse 32 of chapter 10, it says, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So we looked at a message last time after the flood, and we looked at the disbursement of the people groups as they went out over the whole earth. Now the whole earth, Genesis 11 verse 1, use the same language and the same words. Now Genesis 10 and 11 are not necessarily chronological, they are thematic. And sometimes what you'll find as you study the Bible is that you'll find a chapter follows another chapter, so you would conclude maybe in a Western mindset that that means they're chronological, but that's not always the case. In fact, Genesis 10 tells a story of uh, Nimrod. We saw him come up in Genesis 10, verse 9, and Babel, if you go back uh, for a second, uh, let's uh, look at uh, Genesis 10. And look at verse eight. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod, and we explain that Nimrod's name means rebellion or we shall rebel, and he became a mighty one on the earth. Genesis 10, nine. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From that, from that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ur and Kala. Now, he was the mover and the shaker behind the Tower of Babel, and his name means rebellion. And what he built was a ziggurat. He built something like an ancient pyramid. And if you Google ziggurat and you begin to look at images of ziggurats, you'll find that they have kind of an outside uh, stepping stone design. And the steps go up in almost a pyramid shape and they begin to reach towards the top. And so this is the story of Genesis 11 as we'll just look at the first nine verses. But here's the backstory: The whole earth at this time used the same language and the same words. So we're going to understand now how we get variations in these. We've already seen, seen the ethnic lines, but we're going to learn now about the languages. And 
At one point in man's history, there was a common language. Everybody spoke the same language. Some scholars believe that that language was Hebrew, that that's actually God's language. And that if you look at the original dialects connected to the uh, people groups that belong to the line of uh, Seth and Shem, you would find that that seems to be the case. At least there's, the, there's a connection there. So the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And this is the, uh, the story of mankind as they begin to uh, come together around the tower. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. That was already mentioned about uh, Nimrod. And they settled there. So they journeyed east and they begin to migrate out. And this, this focus now seems to be on the Hamitic peoples. And they are journeying out. They're connected to this man, Nimrod. And he seems to be a leader of rebellion. And they're going out to this plain. And they find this plain as they journeyed east. One writer has mentioned that the mention of journeying east suggests movement away from God. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, cherubim guarded the entry at the east of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.24. When Lot left Abraham, he traveled eastward, where he met disaster in Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 13.10-12. Abraham's sons by his uh, concubine Keturah were sent away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country, 25.6. Jacob fled his homeland to the land of the people of the east in Genesis 29.1. So it seems that there's something to this whole eastward movement. It's a movement, if you will, away from God. That's why the old saying came up, go west, young man. That's where that came from. Did you know that? No, it's actually not true. It's not where it came from. But, but it sounded pretty good at the moment, didn't it? Anyway, <laughs> so they were journeying east, and they found a plain in the, the land of Shinar, and there they settled. Now, God was telling these people to go out. He was telling them to migrate out, yet they found this plain and they settled. And they said to one another, verse three, Genesis 11, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. So this people group found a spot. They found a spot in the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian plain. It looked good. And they said, it's time, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. Now, when you do a little research on this and you see um, kind of the area immediately around Israel, it seemed like there was uh, stones and plenty of them for building, but there were some locations where there wasn't a lot of stone. So mankind had to come up with a plan and mankind came up with a plan to make bricks and they made bricks out of clay and eventually, during the uh, progress of man, they found that if they burned the bricks, first using the sun and then moving to a kiln, they could make a durable building product. And so they did. And mankind had ingenuity, and we can see that from the early chapters of Genesis, that there was wit and inventiveness among early man. There was no, there's no record in the scriptures of cavemen and that kind of thing, and you know, the guy in the Geico commercial and that kind of thing. No, man was very inventive, and, and when you see structures like this from the ancient world, they're, they are, they're actually ancient marvels because when archeologists look at stuff like this, they wonder how in 
in the world did these people build these things? How did they come up with the, the designs and the architecture and the, the ability to move large objects and make these kinds of building projects? And ancient man, if you will, was much smarter than we give him credit for. And so they've, they've actually found uh, remnants of ziggurats like this in this area of the world. And when you're talking about the Mesopotamian area, you're talking about modern Iraq and modern Iran area. And they've, they've found that when they, when they dug these up, archaeologically speaking, they even found signs of the zodiac connected to these ancient ziggurats. And so these were buildings that were built, but they seemed to, to have a religious purpose. They seem to have an urban purpose, man uh, getting together around a building project, but they seem to have a religious purpose as well. Some scholars believe that the purpose of an ancient ziggurat like this was to, in some way, parallel a sacred mountain. And if you didn't have a mountain immediately available where they would worship gods and goddesses on high places, they would build a structure where they could reach up to the heavens, if you will. And so a lot of the uh, paganism, polytheism, pantheism, and a lot of world religions that you find today, expressions of worshiping the creature rather than the creator that's blessed forevermore, Romans chapter one, find their origins in Babylonianism. They find their origins in ancient Babylon. They find their origins in Nimrod and in the idea of rebelling against God. They find, they find their origins in a pantheon of gods and goddesses, not just the one true God, not, not a monotheism, uh, the worship of the one true God, but polytheism. And in ancient Babylon, and then in other cultures that came down the pipe, if you look at ancient Greece, if you look at Rome, what they had is they had a pantheon of gods and goddesses. And they, these gods and goddesses were often tied to fertility and the weather and that kind of thing. And what you'll see is you'll see there's, there's um, kind of a symmetry that goes throughout history of similarities between these gods and goddesses uh, coming down the pipe of history. And the names change from Greece to Rome, but the goddesses and gods are roughly the same. And if you appease them and you, you somehow you know, make them happy, if you will, then you get blessings of your crops and your herds and, and that kind of thing. And so the people, they end up at this place and they become very inventive and they decide that they're going to make bricks and they're going to make mortar and they're gonna start to build. And they said, look at verse four, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. In Genesis 6-4, there were men of renown. In Genesis 10-9, as we've already looked at uh, Nimrod, he was a mighty hunter. Some people equate that phraseology with he was a man of renown and even tied this back to the early giants and so forth. And so here's what they said. They said, let us make the product and let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. Look at verse four, whose top will reach into heaven. 
And so this is where some, as, as you begin to look at the Bible, people say, well, there was a spiritual dimension to this particular undertaking. They felt like somehow they could reach up to God. Maybe they didn't literally believe that they could go up to heaven. There's been some extreme writers that think that by building this kind of structure, maybe they were thinking they could storm the gates of heaven and in a coup almost take over. I don't, I don't think that that was necessarily what they were thinking. But I think they, would, they were thinking somewhat religious and maybe something like this. If Nimrod was bent on rebellion and we know that he was and if he was in some sense a hunter of souls and if he used false religion to somehow um, bring people together, you could see the purpose of the structure. The purpose of the structure is to unify the purpose of the structure is to bring a group together that's not only uh, centralized around a building project, but they are centralized around a belief system. Hear me well now. This is the form of early religion away from the one true God. Because religion tends to polarize people around a set of ideas. Whether they're true or not, you all know, if you've studied world religions or cults or isms, people tend to polarize around a religious concept or idea. And right now, since the world all has the same language, they speak the same words, and now they put their hands to a, a, the same project, and if that project is anti-God, you can begin to see what the world is heading towards according to the book of Revelation. They're heading towards a one-world religion, a one-world government, where people can polarize around a project that seems to be good for the benefit of mankind, please hear this well, but they are shaking their fist at God. And in fact, I mentioned to you when we studied Revel, uh, excuse me, Genesis 10 that we can see that Babylon does not just stop in the early pages of the Bible, but we follow Babylon all the way through the Bible. We follow Babylon in the plain of Dura in, in Daniel chapter three when Nebuchadnezzar decides to make what? A colossal, what does he make? 90 foot tall statue that seems to be made to himself. And what does he want everybody to do from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people? When the band plays, Nebi says, bow. And that's where we get the uh, VeggieTales, a boss. There's three Hebrew dudes that you hired and they're not bowing, right? They're not with the program. And then in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar's walking out on his porch and he says, ha ha, look, this is the great Babylon which I have made. You see, Babylon's always got this thing about pride. And Nebuchadnezzar, while the word was still in his mouth, God said, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, I got news for you. Sovereignty is taken from you, and you're going to grow some feathers and long nails. You'll be able to play electric guitar with, and just kidding. And for seven seasons, you'll be out, and you'll be eating like an animal, and you'll go mad in your mind. This has been the, the um, testimony of Babylon. Not atheist, just self-worship. The worship of idols. A common cause, a common project, uh, a one-world solution. But we don't need the God of the Bible. We'll do it 
together. Come, let us make bricks. Let us make mortar. Come, let us make a huge ziggurat. Let's make something very religious, something that we can polarize around, an idea, a concept. Some people even see in this the all-seeing eye concept. And we'll, we'll make this thing our focal point. We'll make this thing our community celebration. And, and together we will build. We'll make a city for ourselves. We'll make a tower. Look at verse 4. Come let us build for ourselves. It's not for God's glory. It's for ourselves. It's a city. It's a tower. Whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Man is famous about wanting to put his name on things. Have you noticed? A building gets built and a name gets put on a plaque. This is dedicated in honor of so-and-so. And the person who gets the dedication steps back and really enjoys that, right? Yeah. But you know, there's only one problem with dedicating buildings to man. When you dedicate a building to a man, it seems that that's what drove the project. If you dedicate something to God, have you noticed whatever you dedicate to God, you seem to get extra blessings. Whenever you dedicate something to yourself, you get in trouble. Whenever you make it about me and my glory, that's when you get in trouble. This is the problem with Babel. It's confusion. And so they want to make a name for themselves. They want to, some writers think this connotes a monument. They want to make a monument. And here's their reasoning, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, what God said in Genesis 9-1 is, I want you to go abroad. I want you to spread out. I want you to populate the earth. So this project is actually rebellion. And some people would say, but wait a minute, isn't it a good thing that people are together, that people are singing? Maybe this is where the original song came from, We Are the World. We are the children. It sounds good. I mean, it's a moving idea. I like it personally. In fact, I think a lot of us would long that the world would be one, but it depends upon what the world's oneness is around. Unity centered in a lie is disastrous. You can have people on the same page going towards the same goal, but if that goal is false, if that goal will ultimately bring spiritual bankruptcy, then the goal is not good, you guys. So unity for the sake of unity is not necessarily a good thing. Unity around the sake of truth, and of course, I would say there's, there's a case to be made for that we, of course, we want to get along with, with people, but ultimately, we're concerned about more than just temporary structures and generations. We're concerned about what as Christians? Eternity. You know, just in this last week, I've heard about three people that have passed away that I somehow have a connection with, and that's my concern, is temporary structures and ideas that remove God from the equation can sound good, but they can be stuffed with a big fat lie. And so they didn't want to be scattered, they didn't want to do what God said, so they they, they uh, kind of rally around this structure, this city. Part of it's a religious motivation. Part of it's around uh, the idea of uh, a society coming together. And so this is what they do. Uh, a ziggurat. Um, 
the most famous ziggurat of all is the one at Babylon. It was known as the house of the foundation of heaven and earth. It was to be a place of contact between man and God, or so they said, or with one another. In fact, some of the inscriptions found on these structures speak of that which will reach into heaven or whose top is sky high. Was it a way that they could storm heaven, as I suggested earlier? More likely, it was a way to make one's name last or live into eternity. Nebuchadnezzar, who restored a ziggurat in Babylon, records in a commemorative inscription, this is what it says, quote, the fortification of Isagli, Saglia and Babylon, I strengthened and made an everlasting name for my reign. Here's the thing. Man is trying to find eternity in that which is temporal. Abraham was looking for a city, and he's going to become the hero of the story now. When we move to the end of Genesis 11 and into 12, Abraham will look for a city whose foundations and architect and builder is God. But man looks to build something now, and he wants to make his name last. And look, we all talk about legacy. We understand that. How many of you have watched TV shows or specials lately where they're talking about downloading people's brains into, com into a computer? That's how we'll live forever. You know, the technology, it's, it's going to get there, and they'll download your thoughts and your brain so you can live on. This is, this is man's desire, and we understand it. There's a fear of death. There's a fear of the unknown. This is something I can control. This is something I can build and put my name there. But as heaven looks upon it, heaven says, no, this isn't going to work. In fact, God said um, to Abram, I will bless you and I will make your name great. Genesis 12, 2. You can either let God make your name great or you can try to make your name great. How many of you have tried both? It doesn't work, folks. If you're always trying to force your name to be the name above all names, he's not going to share his glory with another. It's just not going to happen. A number of years ago, digging in the plains of Shinar, archaeologists discovered the remains of certain great towers that these early Babylonians had built. Some archaeologists have felt that they may have even found the foundation of the original Tower of Babel. That is very hard to determine. But they did find that the Babylonians built great towers called ziggurats, which were built in a circular fashion with an ascending staircase that terminates in a shrine at the top around which are written signs of the zodiac. Obviously, the tower was a religious building intending to expose man to the mystery of the heavens and the greatness of God. That perhaps is what is meant here by the statement that they intended to build a tower with its top into the heavens. I'm reading from Ray Steadman here. They were impressed by its greatness architecturally. That is, it was a colossal thing for men of that day to build, and they may have thus thought of it as reaching into heaven. But they also unquestionably, unquestionably were thinking of its mean, as, it, as it of a means of communication with God, of maintaining contact with him. God is not to be left out, you see, in the city of man. He is there, represented by this tower. But it is something subtle, something tricky. It is God in a box, or God in a tower, as Stedman would put it later in his sermon, don't call us, we'll call you. 
We like you in this locale. We're not comfortable with an omnipresent, omniscient God who knows everything. We'd like to localize you here. We'd like to put the parameters around what happens here, and when we need you, we'll call you. Otherwise, we'd prefer you stay out of our business. Do you know, that's what a lot of man-made religion is about. Man-made religion is about controlling God instead of God controlling us. I think that's what this tower is about. I think this tower is about man saying to God, I'll have it my way. I'll settle here even though you told us to go elsewhere. We'll control you. We'll build this building project. We'll make our statement and you'll do it our way. And God says, that's not the way it works. Man-made religion is into stacking bricks because in stacking bricks, we think we're earning points. Man-made religion is based upon a works-oriented system. If I build something, surely I get extra points in heaven, don't I? And God says, no, that's not the way it works. Salvation is by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's not bad to have building projects that are for the right reasons, but that's not what this tower is about. And the Lord came down, verse 5, Genesis 11, to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now, it seems that the tower is built, according to the end of verse 5, they had built it. The city seems to be still under construction. And the Lord came down. When some people look at language like this in the Bible, they say, boy, this seems to be a weird, uh, antiquated way of talking about God. Is God somewhere up there and he has to come down and see what's going on? Are there messenger boys that are updating him on news reports from Babylon? Hey, uh, they, they got the middle of the, the, the ziggurat done. They're working on the tower now or the top. No, that's not how it is. This is called anthropomorphic terminology. How do you like that? It's a 50-cent term. What that means is it's a way for man to understand God in human terms. But we've already learned from the book of Genesis that God is not localized. He's not like man. In fact, he spoke the whole creation into existence in six days. That's pretty radical power, is it not? He knows what's going on. If he didn't know what was going on, he wouldn't come down to check out what was going on. Everybody get that logic? He knew what they were doing. He knew what they were up to. This is just a way of stating it in language that we can understand. The scene switches from earth to heaven. The Lord came down to see is the same anthropomorphism of depicting God in human terms as a scene in Genesis 18.21 when he comes down to see Sodom and Gomorrah. The sons of men indicate their origin and their frailty. It is possible, uh, combining the language of verse 5 and 8, as I mentioned before, that the tower is built, but the city is not completed. No, says uh, Stedman, this is not primitive, a primitive concept of God at all. It's an ironic expression. It's satire. Listen to this. It's a humorous expression, if you please, designed to indicate to us a very, in a very clever way the ridiculousness of this whole situation. 
Here's this tower that men erect, thinking that it will take God's breath away. It will threaten him. Men think, here we are. We are wild Promethean creatures. We've dared to invade the heavens. You'd better watch out, God. But up in the real heavens, this tower is so little that God can't see it. It's so tiny that even the strongest telescope in heaven does not reveal it. So God says, I'll come down and investigate. Can't see it, just too small. Now all of this is satire. All of this is a humorous way, but in the original language, that's kind of what's implied here. There's, there's some sarcasm going on. Man thinks he's built something great, and to God, it is nothing God even said, what kind of building could you build for me that will actually house me? Would you, ever, would you all take, um, hold a place in Genesis 11 and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. So you're going to pass up the Psalms, the Proverbs, Isaiah chapter 40. Here's what God says, and, and a lot of this he's responding to the false gods that Israel has um, begun to worship or at least to try to mix their worship. This is Isaiah 40 verse 21. God says, through the prophet, do you not know and have you not heard? Isaiah 40, verse 21. Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth. 40, 22. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing who makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they planted, scarcely have they sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I should be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number, who calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know and have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Here's some hope. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Let's turn back to Genesis 11. Are you weary tonight? Have you put your hands to a building project that's not really about God? but about you? Has it caused some confusion in your life? There's always a chance to build on that strong foundation on the rock instead of the sand, but you get to decide which you're gonna build on. And Jesus drew a parallel between two people, one who hears his words and doesn't act upon them, and another man who hears his words and does act upon him upon them. The man who hears Jesus' words and doesn't act upon them is compared to a man who built his house upon the sand. And when the storm came and the wind blew and burst against that house, it fell and great was its fall. 
And the other man is a man who hears Jesus' same sermon, but he actually acts upon them. And he's like a man who built his house upon what? The rock. And the same storm comes and the same winds blow, but that house does not fall because it's been well built. This is a project, this tower is a project built on sand. And what you build your life on is what matters the most. And God does see what's going on on the planet. And he says, in response to their come let us build, Genesis eleven seven says, God says, come let us. This seems to be the divine plural, that is the triune God, and we saw this earlier in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. God says, come let us go down. And there confuse their language that they might they may not understand one another's speech. Can you imagine being a foreman on this huge building project? Project Ziggurat, Tower of Babel, go here, the lunchroom's there, you're one of the foremen. It's this huge project with all these people coming together to build. And one morning you get your coffee and you begin to give directions to one of your workers and you sound like you're speaking a different language because you are. (laughs) And your worker's not doing what you told him to do and you're like, hey! Don't you understand what I'm saying? And he's going, me no speak the English. <laughs> what? Yesterday, we were communicating perfectly. Some of you are saying this applies to my marriage. Yesterday, the communication seemed to be perfectly wonderful. <laughs> and now, we seem to have a failure to communicate. Amen? Do you sometimes feel like you're speaking a different language to a spouse, children? Read my lips. Sometimes you have to spell it. And, can I get a witness? Oh, do you know what that spells? (laughs) Politicians, read my lips. No new taxes. Yeah, right. And now these people wake up in the morning and there's a building project going on, but nobody can understand anybody. Well, they can understand people in certain groups. And so somebody is over there and he said, hey, you know what he's talking about? I have no idea. I think he's gone wackadoo. I don't know what's in his coffee. I don't know what was in the donut, but he's lost his mind. Wait a minute, there's another group over here and they're saying something and that sounds a little foreign to me too. That sounds like Greek to me. And all of a sudden, mass confusion. People who could perfectly communicate and perfectly work together now cannot speak to one another anymore. God has come and confused their language. You know, language in and of itself is a miracle. How is it that we can speak words? Have you uh, just ever kind of just stopped for a second and tried to think about this scientifically? Isn't it amazing that kids even that will be raised in a dual language household can pick up both languages? You can pick up a language that you have heard but not even written, and language is a miracle. Um, The fact that my brain can think now and can, can communicate in words and I can recall stuff that I studied, that's a miracle. The mind is a miracle creation of God. And even evolutionists say there is a huge gulf between man's language and the chatterings of animals. Every time my dog is barking, (laughs) I said, can you come up with something new? 
Now, how many of you have heard, uh, was it uh, Brian Regan, when he does his dog thing, and he said, imagine if you, you know, you moved to a new neighborhood and you went out on your porch one night and you just started yelling, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> That's what dogs do. What are they talking about? We don't know. Hey. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Language is amazing. And now there's all these diverse languages, and now, think about this, every language that now came out of this situation had to now be put in a, put in a written form. It's driven Bible translators crazy <laughs> over the centuries. How do we come up? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of uh, languages right now, they're still trying to do translations for these, especially in the 1040 windows, they call it in missions work, Right? You have a person who will spend their whole life trying to translate the Bible into a language that you know, is somewhat unique. So the Lord confused the languages. That was a miracle. Language is a miracle. Confusing the languages is a miracle. How all the dynamics and mechanics worked, of that, worked that way, I don't know. But all of a sudden, when you would say yes in whatever your native tongue was, now it came out in a different native tongue. And I've read some things on this where if this was exclusive to the Hamitic people, and remember we're dealing with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is the Semitic people or the Shemitics or the, the Jewish Semitic lines, if you will. Ham, the Hamitic peoples. Japheth is the Indo-European and the Hamitic peoples, um, the people of uh, the Can Canaanites and so forth. And they talk about in the Japhetic languages, Indo-European languages, some of you speak some of those languages like uh, Spanish and Italian and that kind of thing. There's a, there's a similarity between those Japhetic languages. There's a similarity in the Semitic languages, but in the Hamitic languages, they say there's a wide variance. And, and there, there are scholars that tie this back to the tower and say that the, the focus of the people here has more to do with the Hamitic people because the Shemites would have retained Hebrew and so forth. So my point is simply this. This may have been, this may have pointed more, uh, at least focused more on a specific people group. And the Lord, verse eight, scattered them abroad. Not only did he confuse the language, but scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and stopped building, notice not the tower here, but the city. So this is God's action. God's response to this project is to bring confusion where there was a building project that was unified. And some people say, why would God do this? Doesn't he want humanity to be one? Well, ultimately, humanity will be one. The book of Revelation says every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be before the throne and before the lamb, and we will be one in Christ. And Jew and Gentile become one in Jesus Christ, but God does not want humanity in rebellion to become unified in rebellion and lose their way. And so he confused the language and he scattered the people. This is God's action. This is actually an act of mercy. When God stops you from a dumb building project, it's a mission of mercy and grace. When he, you know, you thought you had clarity on something and maybe there's, it's not there anymore, could it be that it's God's grace? 
Could it be that there's been many times in our lives when God has stopped something for our good, even though we thought it looked good? We thought it had promise, and he stopped it. And the people now obviously came together by their languages and their families, and they began to file out. They couldn't understand each other. There was probably frustration and confusion, and off they went. Henry Morris says, this is what God called them to do in the first place. As each family and tribal unit migrated away from Babel, not only did they each develop distinctive culture, but also they each developed distinctive physical and biological characteristics. He writes quite a bit on this, but his, his point is, is that as the people came together with their common languages and dialects, and then they migrate, migrated to specific geographical climates and areas, they began to develop DNA patterns, and those DNA patterns would now come in the major people groups that you can see throughout the world. So if you have a Semitic line, if you have a Japhetic, Japhetic line, uh, Indo-European, if you have a Hamitic line, you're going to find similar characteristics in the um, appearance of these family groups. And so God causes them to scatter. They stop the building project. Final verse for tonight. It says, therefore, it was, its name was called Babel, because the Lord, the Lord's behind this, confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. What you have is you have a play on words in the Hebrew. The, therefore, its name was called Babel. Some be, people believe that means the gate of God, or uh, it ties to God's name in some way. But the Lord confused. See that word confused? Some versions have confounded. Is the word balal. So you have Babel, and the Lord did Balal. And what you have is now a, a mingling or a mixing or a confounding that then brought confusion. So a place that they thought they would find God became a place of confusion. Because God does not want you to go after a lie. He wants you to find clarity and freedom in the truth. Have you ever just been around something that did it smacked of a lie and you sensed it in your spirit as a Christian? There's a great story that Walter Martin tells. He tells of an African-American gentleman that got saved in his 80s and he was part of this small church that was on a main street corner, like a little Baptist church. And he was spending some time with the pastor on the inside of the church and he left, we'll call him Old Fred, and Old Fred went out and uh, he encountered a Jehovah's Witness who had a circle of people around him and he was sharing his message. And so the pastor tidied up some things and he walked out and he saw his new convert, Fred, just saved in his 80s, you know, been a Christian for like eight months. And he's listening to the Jeho this Jehovah's Witness and the pastor thought, oh no. And he thought, eh, I'm just gonna wait and see what Fred thinks of all this. And so Fred was a pretty new Christian and the meeting broke up and he walked, the pastor walked over and said, Fred, what'd you think of what that guy was saying? He goes, well, pastor, I don't like to know everything about such things. But one thing I know, something deep down inside kept saying to me, he's a liar, he's a liar, he's a liar. <laughs> That's the discernment of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. See, this was a place of confusion. God was just kind of stamping it. You understand what I'm saying here? Men, when they 
remove God cause confusion. Do you know that uh, in the last few decades, there have been some well-known atheists that have become theists. They've become believers because they have lived in a world of confusion, and here's their world. They're trying to use philosophy and evolutionary theory to answer the deepest questions about life. And all evidence that's flooding in is saying exactly the opposite. Evolutionary theory is bankrupt and dead, and philosophy continues to point to something higher, something greater than ourselves, something that began it all. And that story is recorded in the scriptures. And so someone who lives with a philosophy embracing what I'm gonna just call flat-out lies lives in a world of confusion. They somehow have to become their own super being. They have to answer every question in humanism. Humanism is basically about man. Man's gonna solve every problem and just uh, deal with every confusion. How are we doing? We have become more advanced, seemingly, than civilizations gone by, but we've become more effective at killing each other. We have all this technology, all these advances, but man cannot seem to figure out the basic uh, stuff of what life is about. And here it is. It's to know the God who made you and find life in him. Then what you decide to build, you build it unto his glory. Look, God doesn't want to take stuff away. He wants to add to you. But he does not want man to live in a state of confusion. And that's where they were. Whether they knew it or not, they were on the verge of disaster. And God stepped in with a message of grace. And Jesus comes and he lives and he dies and he resurrects from the dead and he says to his, to his gathered followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God has a heart for the nations. And they're gonna become one again in Jesus Christ. And it's so neat when, we, when I look out on a Sunday or a Wednesday night and there are different tribes, tongues, and nations represented. And at one point, with one voice, we're gonna glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe when we get to heaven, all those languages that were many will become one again. I don't know how it's gonna be in the millennial reign of Christ because I know different nations seem to still exist and they bring their glory into that city and we're gonna see the variety and diversity, but ultimately, we are all one in Christ Jesus, amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for the clarity that it brings. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you that you didn't stay in heaven and just let man ruin himself. You came down in an act of mercy and grace. And in some ways, this coming down does prefigure you coming down to die for us that we might have life. You came down and you left your heavenly abode to... Uh, live that perfect life that we could not live and die, that we might have life itself in you. And we're just so grateful that your love is that amazing. We don't always understand everything that you do, Lord, 
but we do understand that you are good, that your love is amazing, that your grace is poured out constantly in our lives. You've saved us from dumb building projects and you've brought us to Jesus and sometimes we've had to take that walk with fewer people around us so we might hear your voice clearly. We've had to migrate sometimes away from certain things and to greener pastures and still waters and that's not always easy, Lord, but it's right and it's good and it's true. And thank you that as we're gonna go on in the book, we're gonna see Abram called out of a family of idolatry and he will begin to uh, have that line birth where the Messiah will come. And this conflict of the ages that we see beginning in Babel with demonic activity, no doubt, Satan behind much of what occurs here, trying to bring people into a lie. Thank you that you are the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. You're here tonight, and it's not by accident that you're here, and if you have not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to know that he came down for you. He came down to bring clarity and truth and love and hope and grace in your life. And you must open the door to him. The handle is on your side. And if you will open the door, he will come in. The key to opening that door is faith. And it includes repentance. It's instead of doing it your way, you say, I'm gonna do it uh, your way, oh Lord. And if you wanna pray that right now, just with your head and heart bowed, it's something like this. And I would just encourage you to pray it and, and uh, make it official now. Don't wait because you don't know what a day will bring. It's something like this. Pray it if it's you. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on the cross for me and rose from the dead. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Please forgive me. Bring truth and hope and clarity into my life. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I believe in your death and your resurrection. I believe that you are God. Maybe you, you've been a backslidden Christian and you've been listening to the wrong voices and you need to come back to God. I'm not gonna give you that prayer, but I think you know what you need to say. And Father, for this precious congregation, thank you that they've put their hands to a good work. Continue to bless them, strengthen them. Let us discern your voice among the many voices in this world. And let us be about your business. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.